back, Habibi. Welcome to Wrecked, the podcast where we explore what happened when California legalized adult use marijuana in 2018. I'm Christopher Trout, co-founder of The Grass Agency, a cannabis creative agency and travel guide to the wild world of weed. I'm joined today by the wonderful and talented Rena Caria, my close friend and co-founder of The Grass Agency. Hello. Hey, Rena. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me (laughs) (laughs) on our podcast. (laughs) Also joining me today is uh, Brandy Moody, a cannabis marketing and research consultant. Does that cover everything? Yeah, and food and wine. That sounds fabulous. The three together is a very wonderful life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And a great feeling, right? Yeah. So I want to set this, sort of set the scene for you guys. It's February of 2016, and the governor of California has just appointed Lori Ajax, the new head of the let me get this right. The but we were Bureau the Bureau of, of Medical uh, Medical Marijuana Regulation because people always called us bummer. I still remember that, <laughs> and uh, and so you know I I I in I think I was probably in some ways I I feel like maybe I was an unlikely candidate because I wasn't involved in the industry I wasn't involved in cannabis but at that point it was putting together the state regulatory system for medicinal cannabis I spent uh, the majority of my state career with the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control uh, regulating alcohol she's coming into a job expecting to just basically continue to do the work that's been built for her and about nine months later. I will never forget the election night. And, you know, I thought it would be, you know, it would take several hours before we even knew if Prop 64 had passed. And I think here in Cali, when it, the polls closed at 8, I was getting texts at 8.15. It says, you've got, you know, adult use or recreational. It was crazy how quickly it passed. and. And then our role expanded. I think we had, what, 13 months or a little over 13 months to get to get that program together and start issue. We had a statutory mandate to issue licenses on January 1st of 2018. So that was the scary part, right? And you uh, sober up really quick when you go, I have like just a little over a year to get this put together. And of course, you know, at that point, I don't, we may have had 10 staff. I mean, it's just incredible the amount of work got done by a very limited amount of staff. So it was crazy times. It really was. And she don't smoke weed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was part of, this was one of the most interesting things about my interview with Lori, right? She came from the Alcohol and Beverage Commission, which meant that she was in some ways part of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So she was in charge of regulating booze. To her point, as a person that works in law enforcement, she wasn't smoking weed because- She couldn't. It was illegal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's interesting because you kind of think about it both ways. It's great to have this like um, neutral third party, right? Who can really kind of take a step back and look at things holistically and really make decisions that way. But then on the same, uh, on this, in the same, you know, respect, it's kind of a bummer that you don't have someone there. Bummer, 
Mm-hmm. You know, to reference her, it's kind of a bummer <laughs> that you don't have someone there who's like an advocate for the existing industry. When I first got the job, I thought, well, I've been doing this for like 22 years with alcohol. I got this, and then I quickly learned, like, oh boy, this is this is this is gonna, it's very complicated. There, the products are totally different. Alcohol is fairly simple. You're dealing with beer, wine, distilled spirits, and it's a beverage for the most part, right? Other than, you know, a few maybe jello shots or something. But cannabis takes, I mean, it's, it's a complicated plant. It takes on many different forms. And then trying to regulate that, it wasn't going to be simple. So I think we, again, approached it with, oh, we've got a lot of work to do. We've got to learn about the industry we got to learn about this plant before we just start putting you know any regulations in place because i think that would have been irresponsible of it but i didn't think i should have known it would be hard but it was harder than i ever imagined it it really was she had exactly 13 months maybe a little bit more to create an entire framework a regulatory framework that just didn't exist before but what i thought was interesting was the way that she went about it when i first started we did what was called a listening tour and where we just went out and said hey we're the bureau of cannabis control and we're just here to listen and then when we really started having more of these sessions where we were coming in and we said we want to hear from you because it was more it was more listening to the industry instead of us talking to them and said well we're going to do this 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 and this it was more getting that feedback And I think we gained that trust over time that we weren't like any other governmental agency. We really did want to get this right. She just showed up and had a conversation with big guys like Steve D'Angelo. You want sound bites or you want me to stretch out? When I met Steve, I showed up to a nondescript office building in Oakland. Uh And... I don't know what I was expecting. Usually when I go, you know, I used to be the editor-in-chief of Engadget, which is a technology publication. I interviewed CEOs of giant corporations all the time, right? So like the heads of Sony or I don't know who the fuck else, Verizon or whatever. I would interview these people (laughs) and they would always have like a team of people with them. And in fact, when it was a smaller company that was just coming out with the product, the PR people would be there with them, right? Steve D'Angelo showed up with his dog. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, it was just him and his dog, right? He comes in, he's like driving a, I think it was a a sports car of some sort, and the music is as loud as it can get. It was like 10 (laughs) a.m., I'm meeting this guy at this office space. I'm a little nervous because I've read his book. Yeah. I've heard all these things about him. There's been a lot of buildup, right? And I'm like... I'm about to talk to this guy who basically is the guy mm-hmm. and he shows up like music blaring. Was it fish? Grateful I was just going to say, fish. I feel like, I feel like it, <laughs> Super may have, jam band vibes. it may have been jam bandy, but it may have been a little bit more like world music. Oh, oh I like Puta Mayo. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My name is Steve D'Angelo. I am Chairman Emeritus of Harborside Incorporated, which is a vertically integrated California cannabis company. The idea behind the founding of Harborside was to create a gold standard for cannabis retail, to demonstrate to the world that it was an activity that could be done in a way that brought benefits to communities uh, rather than harms. He comes in in his signature braids and, and fedora, and he's wearing a pair of Crocs. Like, he's super casual about this thing, and I'm like, it's just us. 
when I came into the into the cannabis movement, I did my first cannabis demonstration in 1974. Uh, that was the Fourth uh, of July smoking in Washington D.C. And at that time, the cannabis reform movement was making progress. We were passing decriminalization measures in state legislatures and city councils. Um, I think that there had been something like 14 of them got passed by the end of the, the end of the 1970s. And so it felt for those first few years like we are on a trajectory to victory. In 1978, Jimmy Carter uh, called for nationwide decriminalization of cannabis, the President of the United States. So we sort of thought we had it in the bag. Uh, and then Ronald Reagan uh, was elected and launched this um, re-energized war on drugs, which was really mostly a war on cannabis. 80 plus percent of all the arrests on the war on drugs have been of cannabis consumers. So uh, that was a very scary time. Um, you know, I had just been and, and continued through that time standing up in public and talking about cannabis reform, doing smoke-ins, and you started seeing these commercials on TV and really heavy rotation, so you saw them all the time. The most famous is the, the frying egg commercial, right? Um, but there was a whole stream of propaganda and the essence of it was that there's a war against drug dealers and marijuana is a drug. And so it was scary. It was, it was a scary time to be an activist. The range of what we could accomplish became more narrow. Um, and, uh, and we had to figure out new ways to engage the debate. That's when we started talking about medical cannabis and industrial cannabis. We have now kicked off this beneficial cycle of starting with medical cannabis. And, and, and when you do that and you have a real medical cannabis law, people who never would have used cannabis use it they have transformational experiences with it they recommend it to other people who never would have considered using it and that cycle continues what were you expecting january 1st 2018 to look like what were you expecting that to be and did it live up to your expectations well, January 1st kind of lived up to expectations. It was an absolutely wonderful day. Uh, we opened at, uh, it was either 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. so that we could be the first dispensary in California to sell the first gram of legal cannabis. And I sold that first gram of legal cannabis uh, to the lawyer who helped uh, us defeat the federal government when they tried to close us down, Henry Wykowski. So that was a great moment. Uh, the dispensary was full when I drove up at, at, uh, at, you know, really the middle of the night. There were like 300 people in the parking lot. You know, people came with tents from hundreds of miles around to be a part of that moment, right? It was an incredibly validating moment, um, uh, something that I worked for for my entire life. And so that day, that day felt pretty good. 2018, January 1st, 2018 rolls around and he has this monumental party and he's feeling himself. And, and to be to be fair, he's still feeling himself. You know, he told me he's <laughs> on his victory tour or victory lap or whatever it is. He's feeling like we did some shit. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have to say, like, listening to his interview propelled him into a stratosphere that I, I didn't have him in before. Uh -huh. I'd always felt like he was like an ev just like a evangelist, but you really just have to give credit for someone who's fought that hard, mm -hmm. and it's and continuously, yeah. yeah. And this whole idea that there is a movement 
you know, there was a movement to get this where it was. It wasn't like overnight that someone was like, we're going to make money. Let's make this legal. Right, right. It was like, no, we are going to fight. And I just give him so much respect for that. <laughs> we have this industry a lot because of the, mm-hmm. the, the legal fights that he has done or Harborside. He's made all this money, but he has he has used some of it for for litigation that we all benefit from in a way. So this is true. At least the industry, not we all. Right. So you thinking this you're thinking this guy he's he's really profiting off of this stuff in a way that a lot of people right now just are not, right? Um he has seen his work pay off and he's ready to kind of reap the benefits. But he's like the first person to tell you that he's getting taxed out the ass and he's not mm-hmm. happy about it. Almost every third party financial analyst had predicted a 30 plus percent growth in the California market. Uh, in from 2017 to 2018. The 2017 legal cannabis market in California was $3 billion. The 2018, right, the 2018 was $2.5 billion. The regulations that were passed by the legislature allowed every jurisdiction in the state of California to impose whatever cannabis taxes they wanted in whatever manner at whatever amount. And so instead of ending up with the 15% state excise tax, which is what we were expecting, we ended up with a stack of taxes that were passed by cities and counties and the state on all sorts of things, on manufacturing, on distribution, on cultivation, on retail. And so when you add all of these taxes up, in most parts of California, they hit close to 40%. This was devastating, especially for the medical cannabis patients who had made up 100% of the market before January 1st, 2018. Many of them, people on disability, people whose ability to earn money had been impacted by their, by their health conditions, uh, uh, disabled veterans, seniors. I run into patients at the grocery store and they come up to me and they say, Steve, I I want to apologize to you. I'm sorry I haven't been in the shop. I feel really bad, you know, but I just, I can't afford it. And I'm sitting there and it's like tears want to come down my face, right? Because I feel so bad, right? That people that we've served for 12 years, that we've given a safe place, that we've given tested medicine to, that we've provided a range of, of support to, can't come into our shop anymore. The only way we were able to get recreational use to actually happen, the only way that 2018 came about in California, right, mm-hmm. or the, the sort of course of events that happened in 2018, is because people needed slash wanted this plant for medical use. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really, it has been all about messaging when it comes to trying to get this thing passed, right? Mm-hmm. Wellness is the way that people talk about it in the industry. Nobody really talks about recreational use. Yeah. He's not going to talk about recreational. He calls it adult use, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And he does that because he knows that recreational has a stigma. Mm-hmm. You're doing it for fun. You're doing it to get high. You're doing it to, right? You're you're using it the way that alcoholics use alcohol. Yeah. Um. It was very important for him to couch it in those terms. And that's the only way it got passed. Like you got people, a lot of older people using marijuana medically 
who never would have touched it before it was legal for medical use, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And our, our, and I think that's like, statistically, it shows that they're kind of like the the bread and butter for the market right now, too. Um, mm-hmm. I've done a few of these like info sessions with groups, yeah. and I recently did an info session with a group of women who were all seniors, and they were amped. I mean, and the funniest part was at the end of all of this, the takeaway was, well, we should be buying clones and we should just grow it in our backyard and we can make our own hand creams and we can make our own things. <laughs> and I thought like, well, that's great, you yeah. know? But the the enthusiasm within the senior community and the boomer generation, I think is really cool. Well, I think this was, this was one of the other sort of unintended uh, consequences of legalization in California. It's like pre-2018, I don't know that I'd ever really heard of CBD and I don't know that many people had. Now, my 64-year-old mother in, you know, rural Colorado is like, can you get your father some more of that THC cream? Like, (laughs) mom, you're in Colorado. You can pick it up yourself. You know, I mean, like, given she knows what's up, though. She knows about CBD. She knows about THC. She's serving CBD to her Bichon Frises, you know? (laughs) Like, this never would have happened. Right. Pre-2018, but California hits hits the market, and all of a sudden, people in fucking New York are doing CBD yoga. Mm-hmm. You're right. Like, it ne- we never would have been talking mm-hmm. about it. There wouldn't be CBD cocktails, CBD lotion, CBD mm-hmm. pizza. If it All of which are, like, questionably right. active, right? right. Like, they <laughs> maybe don't actually do anything. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, like, my own personal, like, taste tester when it comes to all of that and i've never i've tried the hemp based cbd products and to be honest i I think a lot of it is placebo but you know what like remember saint john's wort people were really into that i I look at it like that you know (laughs) fuck it and the other part of it is is like if cbd is gonna make people like my mom open to the idea of thc and marijuana just generally great Mm -hmm. and i think that in a lot of ways most people in this industry are looking at it that way you know Mm -hmm. like it may we may all think it's bullshit aside from those people that are making money off of it <laughs> we may all think it's bullshit but at the same time it's doing some work to uh to put a softer face on what used to be a an illegal substance mm-hmm. yeah um yeah. i well i think they've got the arthritis and the creaky mm-hmm. joints and they lived through the 60s probably did it mm-hmm. and then was like Oh, got to get my life straight. Make all this money. Yeah, well, boomers. Well, it's the 80s, right? <laughs> and like weed was demonized. Like yeah. hella demonized by the Reagans, right? Yeah. Those two were a yeah. force just to say be no. Like, mm-hmm. They were the worst. Mm-hmm. Like it seems so innocent when we were kids. Just mm-hmm. say no and dare and all that stuff. Yeah. But then you realize that it's connected to this very fucked up war on drugs that Yeah basically put a bunch of black and brown people behind bars for doing shit that white people were doing too. One American has been arrested every 42 seconds on cannabis charges. For decades, we're talking about tens of millions of people and they are still being punished to this day. We have people in the United States who are serving life sentences for cannabis crimes. 40,000 people remain locked up in the United States on cannabis crimes at least and, and and it's hard to count them because the records are so are so sloppy so we don't even really know all of these people have families in many cases the the, the, the those families had their main or sole breadwinner uh, taken away from them 
uh, they have had the emotional support of their families uh, destroyed and robbed. Um, generations uh, are affected by this, right? Uh, it, it, it doesn't just stop with the people who get locked up in prison, it passes on uh, to, to their spouses, uh, to their children, and to the children of the children. He will say that it's not actually a victory until every last prisoner is, every last prisoner convicted on marijuana charges is set free and their their records are expunged. Well, and I think that was the promise of Prop 64, right? I mean, the thing that really kind of pushed me over the edge with voting yes was mm -hmm. that much to the chagrin of my friends that were growers, was that there was this promise that there was gonna be this criminal justice part to mm -hmm. it. And that was kind of, not not to say like the feel good part of voting for it, but I think like the really kind of the hopeful part of it. Yeah. So that's something that I, I, I really stay in tune to of like, you know, who's, who's actually regulating that part of it. Well, and I think the answer is nobody mm -hmm. right and that question of who is responsible for creating some sense of equality within the legal market it's a huge question the old traditional legacy cannabis industry and culture that carried this plant through the dark years of prohibition at great sacrifice are to one degree or another, being squeezed out of cannabis. And the values that were developed during those years, values that I think the cannabis plant teaches us, are not being reflected in the same way by the new entrance uh, to the cannabis industry. And, um, and that's troubling to me. It's troubling to me because uh, because people who have, who literally have braved the helicopters, who have gone to prison for generations, uh, are now losing their farms, are unable to send their kids to school anymore. And you go to some places in the Emerald Triangle and half of the storefronts are shuttered because the state has set up uh, such a cumbersome, challenging, expensive, system of licensing that the only people that can really navigate it effectively are people who can hire, hire an army of lawyers and lobbyists uh, to get it done and then can buy all of the equipment and all of the security and all of the other stuff that's required to exist in the compliant system. What, what if anything has the state gotten right? The culture of change. So, Laurie Ajax, the director of the Bureau of Cannabis Control, has cultivated a culture of change and openness to change from the beginning. An understanding that we're going to need to take a look at the first set of regulations that come out, measure them against real world, world results, and tailor those regulations so that they work better over time. You know, you don't go from, hey, there's no state regulations to, you know, Something like 150 pages of regulation. So I think we knew that. I think the challenge is always how do you evaluate what changes you make um, in a very, you know, when it was still in the infant stages, right? And how do you ensure that we still ensure public safety, consumer safety? So I think, 
And then I think there's those embarrassing moments when you think, God, how did we make that mistake, right? Those are the things you you, you don't intend. Uh, but I think over the most part, I think I think the industry, we like again, like I said, I knew there was going to be people that thought they were way too strict. Um, but I, I have to admit, for the most part, I think the industry was was really, I think, always fair with us and always very good about pointing out where we probably didn't get it right. We constantly look at things and say, well, how can we do better? How do we reach people that just feel like, hey, I don't feel like I could pick up the phone and call the bureau, and I don't even know how to find their number. How do we continue to reach those people? I've learned a lot from this plant. Um, I think in some ways it's humbled me. Um, if you think you're going to come in and you're going to tell everybody this is how it is, and it's not like that, but it, it, what a tremendous experience is to meet the cannabis industry, to learn from the, the folk, the Humboldt farmers, to the folks down in the city of LA and working with those retailers. Um, I've, I've learned so much about what's affected them over the last couple of decades that I didn't, I didn't have that perspective when at my other career, right? But I do have it now. But it's, I have a special relationship with cannabis and, and the people that are involved in the cannabis industry. At least that's how I look at it. And I think it's okay to say we really care about this industry and we're not successful unless they're successful. And I think sometimes as a regulator, you don't always want to be like, have that emotional tie, but we do have that here at the Bureau. And it's not just me. I'm going to say it's our folks. They feel that same way. And when you care about something, I think you get the respect of the industry and we respect them. And so I think that helps us continue to do a better job and always knowing that we're going to have the, the regulations in place aren't going to be there forever. I, we've got to continue to make changes. It's not like we can just say, oh, we're done. It was very sweet. She hasn't used it, but m marijuana has changed her life in ways that she didn't know it or and whatever. Humbled, right? Yeah. I like that yeah. she said humble yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah. Yeah. She, I told you she had Jean Smart vibes for me, but yeah, I like, like really approachable. <laughs> yeah, kind right. of like not momish, but you know, just approachable, which I think is great. And I think like being a listener is really important in her role, right? And yep. her whole listening to her and that kind of thing. Um, again, because it's so different in all different parts of the state. And I found a great takeaway was that it's not we can't use the template of Chicago. Oh, I'm so sorry, Colorado or. Washington. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're a completely different beast here in California. Mm -hmm. And we've had it here for so long. Yeah. So the other side of that is, is that, you know, the culture has been very many things. Mm -hmm. Right. I grew up on the border of El Paso where marijuana and other illicit substances just across the border were creating just massive chaos and you had the cartel wars and you had all of this murder and all these other things. That's part of marijuana's culture, too. And I think it's a thing that we forget about. Mm -hmm. Right. Like growing up in California is very different from growing up in a border town in Texas. And what I saw of marijuana and the sort of destruction that it brought largely because of the war on drugs, for sure. But like there there was a dark side to this prior to legalization as well. Right, and even like friends I knew that grew during the 
during the during prohibition Mm -hmm. you know had like cash buried and go bags and it was like you were always kind of like living on the edge right because at any moment the feds could show up and your whole life would be turned apart torn apart yeah and it's interesting to me for me to see how some of those people have adjusted right and i feel like they really went kicking and screaming into this and they're they're still having a hard time because let's not forget it's only been like a year and a half, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It hasn't even really been that long. And we still, I think, have a long, long way to go. As Lori said, regulations are going to continue to change. It is quite possible that Trump might legalize it across the board right before, you know, the election or whatever. And then what happens? I don't even know. I don't know. I, I really still think the stigma, I mean, even within like the Central Valley, it's still like the devil's lettuce. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we... <laughs> <laughs> That's what they call it. That's Really? Ridiculous. There's a whole brand now called the devil's lettuce, actually. I would buy that. Yeah, I would. I mean, I think that's kind of that's kind of novel. But I think, you know, we live in the Bay Area and I think that we kind of like think like, oh, yeah, California, we're cool with weed. But like. You know, even like I was saying, San Luis Obispo County has made it hard. And that's like a co- that's on the coast. And the coast yeah. historically has been, you know, a little bit more open to this where that county is like, no. Mm-hmm. Well, but, and, uh, but that that's the county- thing that's worth pointing out, right, is that when the regulations went into place, the state said every municipality, every city gets to decide whether they want weed mm-hmm. businesses mm-hmm. or whether they didn't. And the majority said no. Which is like... Kind of crazy because it's a democratic process, right? We all voted for it when one would think that, you know. Yeah. And you would I, have I mean, access to it afterwards, yeah. Right. I think that's true of everything when it comes to legalization is as much as we were sold this bill of goods in 2016 as voters, what we got was something completely different and it hasn't been black and white. Mm-hmm. It's been very much gray area all around. Wrecked is a podcast of The Grass Agency. I'm Christopher Trout. My co-hosts are Rena Caria and Brandy Moody. We're produced and edited by Kyle Mock, and our theme music is by Regender. Follow us at The Grass Agency on Instagram and Twitter. We'll see you next week.